Hello, I'm Annabelle Lee and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast. My guest today is Emily Palethorpe. Emily is an internationally renowned oboist who also practices as a psychotherapist, seeing clients for the NHS and at the Door Clinic in Chiswick, as well as online in private practice. I spoke to Emily in June when we talked about her versatile work in oboe playing and psychotherapy and how both areas relate to each other. This led us to discuss a range of topics such as the healing power of music, mental health and well-being, breathwork and two pieces Emily has recorded, Britain's Six Metamorphoses after Ovid and Vaughan Williams' great art song Silent Noon, arranged for oboe and piano. These two works speak to the psyche and the great emotive sway music has on both player and listener. The full film for Britain's Six Metamorphoses after Ovid will be premiered on Emily's YouTube channel on the 10th of January 2024, so go to the description box below this podcast for a link where you can subscribe to Emily's YouTube channel for the release and be the first to know when to watch the film. Can you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey into music? Do you come from a musical family? So my name is Emily Palethorpe yeah, yeah, and I'm an oboist and my gateway into music was through the recorder which I started at a very early age. Nice. I don't come from a musical family, I come from a family of teachers ah. and uh, my mum was really keen that we had music so when um, She'd, she'd had a lot of music playing around the house um, and she asked what would be a great instrument to start on and this recorder, which I still think is a fantastic way into music because yeah, it's definitely. so direct and easy and you get the breath yeah, right yeah. away and yeah. it doesn't take long because the technique is so simple. It doesn't take long for you to go from playing notes to playing music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And there's so much transference isn't there if you can if you play the recorder like you can go to playing like the flute or the oboe because the yeah. fingerings are very similar aren't they yeah. yeah yeah so then I remember hearing a recording of Beethoven 5 and hearing the oboe yes and I was about 11 uh-huh. and that was it I knew that was what I wanted to do with my life so I started the oboe at 11 and um and and that was, you know, and just went from one thing to the next. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you know that, you know, you were going to make the oboe your career? Because I see that you trained at a number of excellent music schools here in the UK and over in the US. You know, you were obviously, you know, destined to, you know, do music from a very young age. Or was it something that kind of came quite naturally? Like, Yeah, um, honestly, from the minute, 
I heard the sound of the oboe, I knew that was what I wanted yeah, to do. Yeah. And so uh, my parents um, were due to go on sabbatical mm -hmm. to the uh, UK. I'm from Minnesota in the States. And because they thought I was too old to sort of tag along this time while they were on sabbatical, they'd put me into a British um, school, a British boarding school. And I was very... This was the Purcell, um, wasn't it? No, this was a, a school on the Welsh borders. Okay. Um, and I was very unhappy there, mainly because I had just been at the Interlochen summer music camp yes. on the oboe and I was just so raring to go. So uh, in October, they took me up for an audition at the Purcell School and I transferred there and then ended up staying and doing my O-levels before going back to the States um, and transferring to the Interlochen Arts Academy where I finished high school. But at that point, um, I was so certain that I was going to work as a musician that partly through my parents' encouragement, I decided to uh, go to university first. And I was lucky because um, the university I went to, uh, Yale University, not only had a, an amazing orchestra um, to rival sort of any of the conservatories, <laughs> but also was very close to New York. Um, city. So I was able to go and have lessons at Juilliard and attend Juilliard oboe class at the same time that I was at Yale. And that was a great way to really focus on my music while still getting a university degree. If you're comfortable talking about this, it's interesting that you said that when you were at the boarding school in Wales, you said you didn't have a great time. And I think a lot of young kids, I think, who love classical music, I think, find it very hard. I think maybe being in a a normal school. So I imagine that when you went to the Purcell, it must have been like, it must have been like a haven for you, just being surrounded by all these, you know, like-minded children who had the same passion as you. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, I remember walking into the school. Yeah. Um, at that point, it was on Heroin Hill and a sort of yes, old house. Yes, that's right. Yes. You could just, you hear people walking up the, um, down the stairs singing. Yeah. yeah. Was, that, <laughs> we started every uh, day by singing Bach chorales. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, yeah. a, it was wow. a wonderful, it was an amazing training. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I mean, this is something that's been, it's been in the news quite recently, hasn't it? But I think it's just such a shame that the schools here in the UK maybe don't put as much emphasis on, you know, music and the arts. Maybe, you know, if all schools started off their day by singing a, a Bach chorale, maybe if our government, you know, started each day by singing a Bach chorale, perhaps things would be a bit better, you know. <laughs> I, I, you're not wrong. <laughs> I uh, sort of my most recent um, endeavor has been to train as a psychotherapist. Mm. So I'm now working as a as an oboist um, in all the facets of being an oboist, but also um, as a psychotherapist. And in finishing my degree, I wrote my dissertation on how musicians who have experienced psychotherapy, use music to access and process emotion. Oh. And the results that came out of this were much deeper than I had appreciated yeah, when I yeah, when totally, I went into this. Totally. And the real takeaways are that music is an incredibly powerful tool to facilitate relationship, to deepen relationship, yeah. to transcend boundaries and barriers of difference even of class difference, uh, it, it's just, it's an incredibly uniting and relationally powerful tool. Yeah. Um, and it creates um, connection and depth. Um, so yes, yeah, so everything you say about the importance of it 
throughout society, you know, whether we're musicians or not, um, especially in the time right now that we have of of great sort of a great mental health crisis is true. Mm. Well, let's move on to your work then in psychotherapy. Um, was this quite a recent decision of yours? Have you always been interested in psychotherapy or was this something prompted by the lockdown? I've always been interested in how we process emotions. Yeah. So essentially I view music as a language I have since I picked up the oboe. I think the oboe has a really special sound that calls very both direct, composers very yeah that com- that calls composers and performers alike yeah. you know before we started the interview you were uh, saying about how difficult it looks to play the yeah. <laughs> and it's true and i i do think that's that's one of the important things about the instrument is it's almost uh we have to pull out the sound it's something that is 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 defying yeah. it you so, know so it's, for the purposes of our listeners effectively you're like it's like biting on your thumb isn't it like you're biting on a reed isn't it like sort of blowing down a a blowing up a balloon oh okay (laughs) yeah so a reed it's a double reed like a bassoon and it's got a small opening and so you are blowing into um essentially a very small space (laughs) which means that it's not like the flute or the clarinet where you use up all your air we have to expel air before we inhale again so um it's a it's it's quite unique but this sort of defying thing we do to create this sort of unique sound I think is part of what makes it feel like the human voice and what what is part of um, the reason that composers reach to it for really poignant, amazing, often very difficult moments in music. It, it's used to portray all sorts of grief and sadness and longing and poignancy. Um, yes. So getting back to your question, I'm sure that there was something that drew me to the oboe because I yeah. was very interested in how we process emotion. And in my work as an oboist, this is always something I came back to. So when the pandemic hit and all the concerts were cancelled, it wasn't a ginormous step to decide to retrain as a psychotherapist um, and to broaden the sort of portfolio of my work. I mean, it's a bit frustrating because I'm sure you're probably aware of, you know, there was a big hoo-ha about, you know, Rishi Sunak saying that artists should retrain, you know, to go into different careers, which of course is complete baloney. <laughs> but at the same time, being able to broaden your skills and diversify into other areas that are also connected to music as well and have another career, I think it's so helpful because it just makes you a more rounded person. And she said that there were so many different similarities between oboe playing and psychotherapy well that's the funny thing is you know I I started um this degree expecting that I would keep my music and my psychotherapy quite separate yeah but what I realized quite early on was that one of the things studying psychotherapy was doing for me was highlighting and defining how valuable music is yeah so one of the big takeaways from studying psychotherapy is that it's helped me define why I'm an artist and why that is vitally important to me and why art and music 
um, are vitally important to the world, whether we are musicians or not. Mm-hmm. So what is what are some of the things that you've taken away then from your work as a psychotherapist that maybe you can now apply as an oboist? I imagine that one of the things is probably the people skills. And I mean, does it make you more empathetic, I suppose, maybe as a a teacher as well. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I guess the biggest takeaway from psychotherapy to music, because there have many been many from music to psychotherapy, yes. but I think the biggest from psychotherapy to music is really defining for me that, you know, I really view the world in a sort of humanistic way. I think that we all have um, the ability within ourselves to become the sort of fully functioning person that we're meant to be. And that that then creates this um, sort of situation where, as the therapist, you want to provide a, a sort of holding reparative relationship, a holding environment in which you can really hear your client. And I think this is translated for me into the way I I and in relationship, the way I meet people, um, probably especially my children, um, as not viewing that I need to rush in and fix them or change them or provide mm-hmm. uh, information more that I'm creating a space in which they can optimally grow. Mm-hmm. That's a bit different when you're teaching oboe technique because no one is magically going to learn how to make a read yeah. and magically know exactly how to support and all the sort of things that you can teach as a teacher. But um, in terms of really putting the locus with the person to find their their way and for you to be a support, um, that's how that's informed um, my stance. There was that wonderful interpretation of um, Silent Noon that oh, you did. Yes. Ray Fawn Williams. Um, and you said in your video that you ex- you kind of made it as a, a song without words. What does that piece mean to you? And, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's based on the Rossetti poem um, and it, it sits in Vaughan Williams's song cycle, The House of yeah. Life. But I just, I think it is one of the most extraordinary songs because uh, the poem talks about this sort of, she calls it an inarticulate hour um, where just finding the space with the other was a moment of peace. Mm, mm. And so to me, it really illustrates in Vaughan Williams's music that music can create for us, especially live performance, this moment when we're really able to be present and we're really able to be in the moment. And I think that's something that people really struggle to find and music can be a a way to to really ground ourselves. And that piece in particular, I think, um, takes us just into that um, experience of really being in the moment because it's so transcendental. And I imagine that because you recorded it, you know, obviously without words. So does it take on kind of a different meaning then when you record it without words? I mean, or are you very, obviously you have to be very conscious, you know, of the words as you, you know, blow through the instrument. Well, I'm constantly... Or the, the lyrical line, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away again and again by the ability of music to convey emotion, you know, even without words. So, you know, as I was playing that, I was thinking the words for me, but I also was recognizing the fact that 
without the words, the music takes flight and it conveys something. I mean, I remember hearing the Finzi interlude for the first time yes. and understanding without knowing the deep grief and this deep sort of sense of trying to escape yeah. from fate that yeah. that piece conveys. And then when yeah. I went and read up on Finzi, mm. I was mm. not surprised to no. hear the history that he'd yeah. endured. So and, he was in uh, a psychiatric ward, wasn't he? Well, and he'd lost, you yeah. know, many people in, in, in the, the war, war yes. and, um, and his wife was suffering from cancer. And, you know, and this, for me, sitting, you know, in the Midwest and America, hearing this piece of music decades later with no words that was clear as could be. It is a profound, profound language. I mean, yeah. another example of that is the um, Britain Metamorphosis after Ovid, which is sort of our one of our seminal pieces on the oboe. Yes. <laughs> there are six, um, six short pieces, each depicting a metamorphosis. And um, I was recently commissioned by Howarth Obermakers to create a piece about this, which was about mental health. And it was a quite a funny story because I was all set to record this and um, to go on the YouTube channel as a, you know, a, a beautiful rendition of the piece in a sort of gallery with Greek statues. And, you know, this is all going to um, be what you might expect. Yeah. And they said, you know, these sort of forward um, thinking leaders at Howarth uh, wrote to me and said, yeah, couldn't you create a, a film about mental health instead? <laughs> to which the answer might have been... Uh, probably not in the time frame, um, except that I, when the email came through, I was sitting with my daughter, who is a, um, a filmmaker director, um, just starting out. And we started batting this idea back and forth. And what I did was get out my oboe and play these metamorphoses to her. And then without reading Britain's captions for each one, because he had sort of two lines yes. um, just depicting the myth to each one. Yeah. So then she and I both wrote down the emotional metamorphosis that we heard in each piece. And we got exactly the same one for wow. us. So, so we decided we were on to something there. And we ended up making a film which isn't the story of the myths. It's no. the emotional journey of each movement. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. Yeah. But also I found it interesting in your video as well that you chose to reinterpret it from I suppose a feminist perspective and that you made you know you made the protagonist a female who you know goes on I suppose her own metamorphosis um and of course culminating in that scene at the end where you know she discovers you as you know her mother and that's just such a poignant moment for me when I was watching it in both a figurative and a, a literal sense I mean it's just yeah, it was a really interesting take on it, very modern. Yeah, and I um, I think it's probably important to say for the listeners, um, you had a sneak preview. Yeah, it hasn't exactly. been released yet. Yeah. But if um, if they're interested in that, then um, it will be released on my YouTube channel. So if they subscribe to the YouTube channel, they'll get an alert when it comes out. Right. But just getting back to what um, you were saying, yes, it was, a, it was supposed to be a journey of from grief to finding flow and yes. a comment on how music can lead us there. You know, in the first um, metamorphosis in Pan, um, she almost can't engage with the music. She yes. blots it out yes. because it's too much to pull her. And then, um, you know, and then the story unfolds from there. But yes, there was something about taking it away, taking these incredible pieces away from these sort of 
archaic myths where, you know, men are chasing women that have to yes. turn themselves into fountains. That was quite yes. a relief. Yes, it was. It was, it was yeah. really cool as well because you did allude, I, well, I don't know, you, you allude as well, I suppose, to, you know, classical imagery in the film, you know, with things like the funeral pyre when she's eating the grapes, the abacuses, you know, the garden. So, yeah. Yes, you got it all. Yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah we, we loaded in a bunch of sort of symbolism there yeah. for people who know the myths and are interested. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you will have seen, we put, we um, took then um, Ovid text, yes. which is from the myths, but isn't in the Britain and, and added exactly. it in the film. That was, that yes. was neat too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those Ovid texts are just so rich, aren't they? And just, yeah, yeah just full of kind of, love almost very sensual in a way aren't they absolutely as the music is yeah one other thing that was great about that project is is that of course britain wrote numerous film scores so it made a lot of sense for the metamorphoses to become a film score emily i know that you work for the nhs and at the door clinic as well as privately online so what does a typical day look like for you as a psychotherapist? So um, in a typical day, I'd have anywhere between three and six clients seen either face-to-face or on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And I think Zoom therapy is really powerful. Oh. You know, it's a lot, I was interestingly speaking to an Alexander, Alexander Technique teacher last week yeah. um, when I was working at Interlochen, who was saying, you know, they thought, how on earth are we going to teach Alexander Technique on, the, you know, on Zoom? And I thought, how am I going to teach oboe on Zoom? <laughs> <laughs> but we did, and we got a lot out of it. But Great. psychotherapy is something where... Zoom psychotherapy is amazing and has many advantages over face-to-face therapy in that therapy is really about the client uncovering their unconscious process. And for me, my integrative take is has a lot to do with the different parts of our personality and how those relate to each other. I mean, if you want to put it in musical terms, we have all these different parts to our personality, which, and we ourselves sit at the center as a conductor. And when it's going well, all the parts are playing together and Mm. complement each other. Mm. And um, there's a sort of unity. Um, but that can quite easily be thrown off uh, to where there's great discord and that's where therapy um, comes in. But Zoom therapy is uh, is very powerful because the person can be in their own home or someplace they're yes. very comfortable. There's much less of needing to suss me out and suss out my environment. Yeah. And it can be much more about them. And if they want to turn their camera off as well, if they feel maybe uncomfortable talking to a person then that's interesting that hasn't I haven't, haven't been asked that yet and I'm not sure how that would work so far there's always been the connection but I will say for sort of high achieving very busy people it's also very liberating because they can just pop into an office yes have their hour online exactly and that's fantastic and they don't have to have the travel to the waiting the travel back from so I think and also you know it means that you can see clients in very different places it doesn't have to all be you know within your traveling radius mm-hmm. it really opens things up yeah yeah you specialize mainly in working 
is it with creatives? Yeah, so my target client um, would be the sort of highly successful, highly creative who's sort of run into a brick wall. And we often find that um, sort of defense mechanisms we have, ways we've gotten things to work, sort of there comes a point when those run out, when you're so, when it can become incredibly exhausting. So we may be performing at a peak level, but just utterly exhausted by what we're having to do to do that. And that can be a point where it's incredibly um, helpful and healing to um, engage with therapy and to understand exactly what our process is and maybe uh, come to understand things from our past which are informing how we are acting in the present Mm. or how we're interpreting the present Mm. and to sort of liberate ourselves from that so that we can actually be in the present, living and working in the present and not dictated to by our past. Yeah, I mean, you've literally, there's so many things that I could talk about from there. I mean, I guess the first point that, you know, just came into my head is, you know, because the word burnout has just become, you know, yeah. a bit of a buzzword over the last couple of years. But let's not underestimate that this is actually a, you know, it's a real thing. And I think obviously, you know, the pandemic showed that actually I think a lot of musicians were very relieved to have a break, yes. <laughs> you know. And yeah. then and then I think the second thing. Just your first point, though, is a really valid one. I mean, I was surprised to hear by even musicians who I thought were the most sort of, you know, um, travel hungry, uh, concert hungry, that they were really relieved um, when the concerts were cancelled and what does that say about us that we that we that we long for space yeah and often when someone's engaged with therapy their life doesn't look very different from the outside when they come out but it feels incredibly different yeah that's the thing is you know and 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 I found this in my dissertation as well. You know, I was interviewing high achieving, fabulous performers, mm. and would have had no idea no. how exhausting to them what yeah. they were doing was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, the, the second point has come back to me now, and I mean, mm. it's just, I think it's this thing that you know, I think often musicians carry a lot of emotion with them whether they're singers or instrumentalists and particularly as wind players you know it's so evident when you hear someone who is carrying a lot of stress in their breath and that in their body and yeah well and there's also something about you know why do we become artists yeah why are we artists and why do we you know engage in a in a career that is so challenging that demands hours and hours of meticulous practice yeah. and especially at the and level that putting you our vulner- vulnerability on the line yes and as an oboist making reads and um and it's because we have we get something from music it helps us process something and so you know one of the things that um really came out of the study that I did was that music for the musician is therapy you know, music, it's a pla- It's a safe place. Like, you know, you can put the CD back in the box. The concert comes to an end. It's a contained space in which we can engage with really deep emotion that we don't necessarily have to have the lived experience to correlate with. You know, you can be plunged into the depths of despair in Tchaikovsky and you don't have to, or Finzi, and you don't have to have been in the trenches. 
you know, or experienced um, the sort of lived experience that these people had. So it's a it's a place, and also it allows us to process emotion almost unconsciously when we don't have to put actual words to it. We're able to turn our thinking mind off and really work things out in our unconscious. And it's made me aware of how I use music. I mean, I'll, sometimes I'll be thinking about something and then I'll notice that I'm actually, I've got a piece of music in my head that's related to yes. it. And my mind is making all these connections that when I do them through music, it's, um, it's, an, it's a smoother way, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's always really funny, isn't it? You know, whenever you have like an earworm in your head, do you have like a melody or like even like a movement from a symphony or something like that and you just keep replaying and replaying it in your head and then you just like, I don't know, it's a strange feeling, isn't well, it? Well, it's interesting. I was reading that wonderful book. Um, I was reading some of the writings by Mo Gauda, okay. who's written a lot on um, happiness and how we find happiness. And he came into this because he really tragically lost his son and he, at one point in the book, he talks about, you know, just desperately trying to understand, just searching for this understanding. And at that moment, into his head came this sort of theme from this game that his son and he used to play. And from that came lots of answers. It was music mm -hmm. that made this connection mm -hmm. in his mind for him. And I certainly have had that experience of mulling over something that I'm trying to figure out and then a phrase of music pops into my head and actually it provides the answer. Yeah. Um, it's it's just so interesting how our brains work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you must be aware of um, Oliver Sacks' music yes. for your book as well. I mean, that's just, yeah, it's just such an amazing kind of case study, isn't it, for the actual, like you were just saying earlier, the actual kind of transformative kind of healing healing power of music is just, yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite amazing. Because music is, um, it's heightened for the musician and a lot of the emotion that we experience in music is heightened. And it's often simpler because it doesn't have to do with anyone else's relationship. It's just our hearing of the music. And so, you know, the musicians I interviewed described music as taking us to another world, described it as transcendental and just incredibly powerful. So it's, I think, I think getting back to your very, very early point, this is something that um, educators need to think about because we don't study music or we don't engage with music in order to be performing at Carnegie Hall. We Some people do. Some people do. The, wait, the level that you play. <laughs> some people do, and I have, but... Um, on a much more important level, everybody should be engaging with music because of the insight it gives them into themselves and because of the uh, what it facilitates in connection with others. Yeah. You just reminded me, um, I was in Vienna actually of, uh, for a break recently um, and we went to um, a leader recital with Christoph Pregardian and Julius Drake and at the end they got everyone to sing a lullaby that everybody in Vienna knew and everybody in the audience was singing this lullaby perfectly in key perfectly in unison and I mean it was just a such a magical moment just yeah that engagement with music just it just needs to be yeah yes. <laughs> well and let's just talk about you know how basic it is to be able to sing yeah yeah and what that does for us because uh 
when we exhale slowly, it calms our vagus nerve, yeah. calms that whole system in our body. It's the reaction to um, the fight or flight. And, okay. um, you know, so what better way to calm the system than to play the oboe, obviously, yeah, which is yeah. one long, slow exhale. <laughs> um, but all musicians do it. When you stand up on stage, you'll watch a cellist who will take a huge breath in before yeah, they bring their bow to the string yeah, and then they yeah. will exhale slowly. And they're not doing that because they have to, to pull the bow across the string. They're doing that because it calms their whole system. Yeah. And so again, these are things we learn when we're playing an instrument and just the physicality of of singing. I, I mean, I read somewhere that singing in a choir is as good or better for you than engaging with yoga or something right. similar. So, so yes, we need to, this needs to be a big discussion about the power of music and how important it is. And it's not something that can be cut. It's not a luxury. It's not something extra. It's something fundamental to who we are as humans. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wondered actually, um, do you incorporate breath work into your psychotherapy? I imagine huh. it's yes. That's a very interesting question because breath work is very powerful. Um, yes, it's something that I've thought about integrating, yeah. and um, I may well in the future. It's, it's a very big thing now. It's a moment. big thing, and again, it's like music because you don't when you sort of have a breath work workshop or a class. You don't have to sit down and talk through the things that are bothering you. You go straight into this breathwork and engaging with the emotion. And so almost the real thing that's uh, that's troubling you or that you're engaging with comes up because the the big sort of dilemma in in therapy is often that the thinking brain can create all sorts of stories for us. So people might say, you know, well, I understand why I don't feel great, but I don't feel any better. And that's because they've made some story up about understanding, which actually isn't touching the truth. Mm -hmm. So breathwork is a great way into touching the truth. I, um, I think therapy can, you know, with the right um, modalities can also be an amazing way into that. And as we've talked about, music is a direct hit. <laughs> What advice would you give to people who are maybe looking into getting therapy? Because it's such a it's such a minefield. That's like um, the wild west, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. To find a good therapist. Well, it's the relationship that heals. Yeah. So in your first session, it's a question of how you connect with the therapist. Yeah. Um, I personally think that internal family systems is an amazingly powerful modality of therapy. So I always advise to look for somebody who uses internal family systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I think also, you know, making sure that you have the right therapist as well, because, you know, I think sometimes they can maybe misinterpret you or, you know, sometimes they might not be very personal. They might actually be quite impersonal. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's like, you know, sort of, I think we have a new... There's there's a new fashion amongst therapists, and and uh, many of us think that you know the relationship is is very important, and we're not the sort of old fashioned you know analysts who are a blank slate. <laughs> um, so that's not what you have to have. Just like you know, we don't expect to go into orchestras and be bombasted by a sort of abusive conductor anymore. We expect these guys to show up and be nice and mm -hmm. uh, and respectful mm -hmm. and um, have empathy. Mm. So I think 
following your own gut instinct and trusting in your feeling of the relationship because it is essentially the relationship that will heal and and i think also being aware of what we do in music and how healing that is can be very helpful mm-hmm. yeah well it's been it's been so lovely talking to you emily and getting oh. to know a bit more about your work but you and your partner are very well respected classical musicians you play in the top orchestras but I know you also have a very busy family life so how do you look after your own mental health yeah that's very interesting yes it tends to get put last because you know having children I I sort of feel that they go first but of course if you know if you're not well and you're not in balance it's it's very hard to parent so um I've obviously sought out variety, you know, combining um, music, a marriage, children, um, and now psychotherapy means that there's lots of variety. Um, that has its own challenges. I think um, bringing the great sort of psychotherapeutic tool of unconditional positive regard and empathy to yourself is probably, you know, that you're not going to get it right. Yeah, even a high percentage of the yeah, time yeah, um, yeah. and to recognize that's what it is to be human. Um, it's been very humbling to be a parent and a musician and <laughs> trying Definitely. to do all those things um, and just to recognize that what that really looks like, especially in this age of sort of curated sort of material, we, yeah, we often see a facade media. of people. Yeah, um, it's very hard to get a sense of what's real, what real looks like and actually how magical real is. And I think probably under that is uh, getting comfortable. And I think this is something all musicians need to attend to is getting comfortable with failure as failure. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Failure yeah. is, is uh, as a step towards growth yeah. rather than something that's shaming. And yeah. Yeah. Cause I fail all the time. <laughs> so. Oh, so do I. <laughs> Self-compassion is so important, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, particularly as, as classical musicians, I think I certainly know that flute players, oboe players, we can sometimes be very, well, we can be very perfectionistic and we like to get things like right all the time and actually accepting you're not going to be perfect. I think like it has to be the way forward. And I mean, I know that both you and your partner have taught at conservatoires. How do you negotiate that then with your students? There can be this kind of master and slave relationship that occurs in conservatoires and maybe, you know, there can be a much more compassionate and empathetic way towards teaching the pupils. I don't know. Oh, I think definitely compassion has got to be the highest. And, you know, anybody who is trying to make somebody who's come to them for help feel little needs to look inside themselves as to why they might be doing that. Yeah. I've just come back from an intensive week yes. teaching at Interlochen yes. and one of the pupils we were we were discussing performance anxiety and oh, the question came up of you know how do you cope when a performance doesn't go well mm. and I said that I've sort of changed my definition of what a performance going well means for me you know, with taking orchestral auditions, um, perfection is, you know, sort of high on our list when we're thinking of how we play an orchestra. 
But I've really come to view a successful performance as one where I really said what I wanted to say at least once or twice. Yeah. And to me, all performances contain mistakes. That's the liberating part of recording. You get to try things <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you get to take real risks and know that you, you know, you can try to play it as impossibly quiet as you want and if yeah. you fall off that time you can record it again so um but in live performance we often we've got to know we're going to be safe on that low note or whatever but if we can really think about what we're saying and what we're communicating that sort of changes the parameters of a performance and um, I've often had the experience of you know it's always a compromise being an oboist you know very rarely do the weather and the reeds and the oboe line up, oh, you know, yeah, a thousand yeah. percent. Yeah, so there's many variables. Some, there's so many variables. And um, as we've discussed, you know, it's one of the beauties of the instrument. But, you know, there'll be, I, I invariably find that the days that I show up and I think, gosh, this reed isn't exactly what I want. I try that bit harder. And that's when I see, especially that I reach the people in the audience and they'll come up and say, that was, that really said this to me, or I heard this. Yeah. And, and so it just is a reminder to me, um, being an oboist makes us very humble. Um, it's a reminder that, you know, it's not about us. It's about reaching and connection. So what we're looking for, I think, goes a long way to addressing how we feel about yeah. our performance. What was so lovely about watching, you know, you and, and Daniel, you know, from the videos that I've seen. And, you know, it's that both of you, I've, I said this to him when I interviewed him, is that both of you, you know, you really go for it. Like you really go for the emotion <laughs> and yeah, you really invest and yeah, you commit a hundred percent. You just go for it. Well, you know? I've been so lucky to have our chamber ensemble, London Concord Ensemble. And, you know, over the years, you know, recording our Polong CD yes. and the Russian music we recorded and uh -huh. um, all the chamber projects we've done together. I've been so inspired by every single one of those players yeah. who each has a just completely unique sound and goes for it a thousand yeah, percent. So yeah. I've been... I've really learned a lot being on stage with those guys yeah, and I think we've all definitely. inspired each other and it's been that wonderful mix of just so wanting to play your absolute best and yet feeling completely safe with your colleagues yeah so, and that's that's magical you you have great both you and, and Daniel have great stage presence oh thank you connection <laughs> yeah yeah and like well it was great during the um pandemic to first of all Dan and I were lucky because we had each other to play with but then to have this project of getting our um YouTube channel set yes. up so that those performances are live and that they're up there and and to be able to record some pieces that really meant something to us and know that those performances are are out there um and also I find you know when I teach it's you know you can teach the Von Williams can but then you know people can go and hear your CD or they can you know go hear your Strauss recording and it's nice to have those recordings under our belt. Yeah yeah well everybody go and check out Emily's fabulous YouTube channel and the video the Britain video is coming out. When? It will be yeah so if if they sign up on the YouTube channel then they'll get a notification when it's coming out it'll be sometime this autumn. Great Emily it's been such a joy and a pleasure talking to you thank you so you too. much. Thank you so much for inviting me.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Talking Classical podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other major outlets where you get your podcasts. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or the Talking Classical blog. If you have a moment, please would you leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, as this will help to increase visibility and get the podcast to more people. Many thanks for listening once again, and I hope that you'll be able to join me for another podcast very soon. Bye for now.